The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades, and happy Mother's Day to all of our mamas in the body. Um, the scripture reading for today is from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that... As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Shades. How are we doing on this Mother's Day? Good. I do you want to wish all the moms in the room a happy Mother's Day? Also, want to say thank you to all the moms who are spiritual moms. Uh, just to let you know, we have a small gift, uh, a chocolate bar that hopefully the kids haven't already taken off the table that's in the back, and so be sure to uh, grab that on your way out. We're also going to have a time of prayer for you at the end. You know, we acknowledge that this is a day to celebrate, but I also think it's appropriate to say that this can be a day that's hard for some people for a variety of different reasons. And that we can do both here. We can celebrate and rejoice and honor moms. And we can also acknowledge that for those that there might be some hard feelings coming up this morning, some grief, that you can bring that in. That you can bring that before the Lord. It's a safe safe space to do that here. All right. Um, Before we dive into our passage, I'm, I'm really excited about this sermon Uh, just because it's a passage that's been very impactful for me in the past few years. The Lord has used these words to minister to my heart and to bring about some transformation in my life that I've been praying for, for for years. And so this morning is really an overflow of what the Lord has been doing in my heart through this text. And so my prayer is that by his grace and by his spirit, it would be of some benefit to you all this morning. So would you join me in prayer as we ask him to move? Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are present here. And because you are present by your spirit, that life-changing things can happen this morning. That you can transform our hearts and our minds, that you can visit us, that you can meet us. For we are a people that need comfort, we are a people who need joy, we are a people who need you more than anything else, and so would you do that? Would you visit us this morning and reveal yourself to us? I also pray against the enemy who seeks to put up walls in our hearts this morning that we may not hear and receive your truth, that these words might just stay on the surface level and not go down into the depths of our soul. And so I pray that even now, 
by your spirit, you would protect us from the enemy and his schemes and that you would open eyes that have been blinded. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Years ago, it was late in the evening and I couldn't sleep and so I do what every healthy person does and I went on YouTube and I just scrolled through the algorithm that probably knows me better than I know myself. And it recommended a lecture by a New Testament scholar that I was reading at the time. If that's not horrifying, let me say that again. YouTube recommended a lecture by a New Testament scholar that I was reading at the time. What? But the Lord was providentially working through it all and I came across this lecture by a guy named John Barkley, and it stayed with me. And in the lecture that he was giving to college students somewhere, it was Oxford or Cambridge, something like that, he talked about a crisis that he has seen in not only the culture, but also in the church. He said this, he said, we live in an age when crises of self-worth seem to have reached epidemic proportions. Schools, colleges, counselors, church, health workers, all reporting a sharp and shocking rise in the number of people, especially young people, who are reporting a collapse in their self-esteem and a sharp rise in anxiety, self-doubt, and depression. What's interesting is he's not the only one saying this. Many researchers, psychologists, counselors, college professors, and pastors are seeing that mental health and psychological well-being has become more negative among teens and young adults since 2012. If you're interested in looking more into this, I recommend the work of Jonathan Haidt. He's been really helpful for me on this. You can go to his website, and he lays it all out. So Barclay notes in the lectures that, you know, some in our society are seeking to profit off this. Big shocker there, right? So we all know, this is not new to you this morning, that marketing agencies pay social media influencers millions of dollars to simply insert various products into their feeds, right? Why does this work so well? Um, Well, because here are accounts that we look at And here is a life of beauty, money, affirmation, success, and travel. And guess what? They use Charmin toilet paper, right? I mean, it's it's a brilliant move. Have someone whose life everybody fantasizes about, someone who, whether we would admit it or not, at times we want to be, right? Someone that's happy. Someone that you look at and say, they must within themselves have peace, right? They must have confidence. They must have this wholeness, and man, I want that, right? Let's see if Charmin is on sale. So there are some that aren't singing to to profit off this. There are some that are genuinely trying to help. Right? And there's a variety of voices that have entered into the field with various solutions, and there are a lot of helpful things out there. But as I look 
in the midst of all the answers and solutions and different approaches that people are taking, I can't help but think that we as the church have such rich resources to mine and to dig into to respond to what's being called as the self-worth crisis. Now, to be clear, what we don't have is simplistic solutions. What we don't have is hyper-spiritual solutions that negate the social, the psychological, and the biological factors that are at play in the phenomenon that we see, right? So we don't have simple or reductionistic solutions, but we do have a gospel that's good news to those who suffer. We do have a gospel that is good news for those who ask, who am I at the end of the day? Who am I and where am I going? And how can I have any hope? So, in light of this crisis today, I want us to spend some time in 1 Corinthians and hear Paul's words and reflect on the self-worth crisis so that we might see some of the resources that we have. So look at 1 Corinthians verses 26 and 27 with me. If you haven't yet, you can open your Bibles there. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I think to get the force of these verses, which you've probably heard before and are familiar with, it's good to know a little bit about what's going on in Corinth, and it's good to know something that I'm calling the Corinthian worth system. The Corinthian worth system. So it appears, if you read through the letter, I think you see this just from opening up the letter and reading it, that the, there was this cultural worth system of Corinth. One scholar said that the walls between the church and the culture in Corinth were very thin. Very thin. And I think that's what, what's going on. And, and you can just see how the culture that these Corinthian Christians are in is just shaping how they view everything. Shaping how they view how church life should gather and, and function. Right? And I think what Paul sees is what they can't see, which is humbling as we think about our own situation, and is that, hey, you guys are really being shaped by the world around you. And it, it's causing issues. It's causing division, right? So there's divisions about which leader to follow, right? So the Corinthians are looking for a leader they could get behind. Ah, okay. Here's a leader that I can attach my identity to. Here is someone that I can follow. Here is someone that has all the answers. Here is someone that I can retweet. Right? Uh, someone like Apollos. 
Yeah. Apollos is the type of person that you want to attach your name to. He has the kind of education and the rhetoric that was expected of speakers in their day. Someone with the personality, the charisma, the rhetoric that people look at and go, yeah, there's a lot of worth behind that speaker, right? So you can just imagine the Corinthians when they can't sleep at night going on YouTube and typing in Apollo's current political crisis. Let's see. Oh, the Today Show. Apollos was on the Today Show. Let's see what he has to say. It's interesting, as I just said, the Today Show, I was a little panicked that I was going to pick a news station and that if I picked a news station, that might cause some offense. Isn't it, isn't it wild, the time that we're in? So I went with the Today Show in the .5 seconds because that felt safe. Right? Um, what was I talking about? <laughs> you get what I'm saying, right? I wrestle, struggle with my identity, so I'm going to attach myself to somebody who I see has worth and value. Ah, my self-worth and value rise, right? That's what they do in Corinth. There's also divisions happening, not just among which leaders to follow, but also um, at the Lord's Supper. And I've spoken on this before because it's just so foreign to our context, but it seems like in 1 Corinthians... Uh, you have uh, this major division at the Lord's Supper. So you have like some people getting hammered. You have some people that are leaving hungry, right? You see what I mean? We've had a lot of issues through the years at Shades Valley. I've never gotten an email about the Lord's Supper. <laughs> and someone being, you know, Jeff Stallcup was getting hammered at the Lord's Supper, Brad. We need to address this, right? Or, hey, Brad, I left from the Lord's Supper, and I was still hungry, right? Um, so this is like a little foreign to us, right? Um, but at this time, you know, it seems like the Lord's Supper was, was part of a larger meal that's happening at households, okay? And so what's happening in Corinth is they're just following the Corinthian value system of dining, okay? So what does that look like when we get together and dine? Well, most honored guests, those who have the highest social standing, uh, in the best room. Lesser guests in the atrium, right? We're not going to be in the same room. And then uh, servants in a smaller room off to the side. And the servants will get what's, what's left over if there's anything left over, right? Just your typical church gathering. So it, it sounds crazy to us, but... I just want us to see that in Corinth, they're following the worth system of their day. So Paul's seeing this, right? What does he say? 1 Corinthians 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul, seeing what's going on, how is he going to address the issue? Which that's interesting to me. And he does so by saying, okay, Corinthians, I want you to think about your calling. I want you, as you, as you gather church and you, and you sing songs and you worship, I want you to consider your calling. Or another way I think you can phrase it is I want you to think about your salvation. <laughs> uh, not all. There were some wealthy members in the church 
in Corinth, right? But not all, but many of these Christians would have been seen as nobodies in Corinthian society. Low on the worth scale, right? Not many of them were seen as intellectuals, as they would see intellectuals. Not many of them were social influencers. Not many of them were born into high status, right? And yet, God has called them, rescued them, and lavished all of his gifts upon them. And Paul's saying, as you think about the worth system, I want you to remember that God didn't call you, seek you out, or save you, or come to you because of your influence, because of your intelligence, because of your family lineage, because of your money, or because of your personality. He didn't save you based upon anything to do with the worldly worth system in Corinth, right? And this might sound right to us, but it was a scandal in the ancient world. This was a scandal, and I think it still is today. But in the ancient world, you can see how this was a scandal if you read someone like Philo. So here's Philo, who I know we're all familiar with. Right, probably read, read a little Philo this morning before you came in. Um, so Philo, he was a Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, and here's what he said about God. He said that God gives gifts, right? And God gives his best gifts. God gives his highest gifts to who? Fitting and proper recipients. Okay, so what does that mean for Philo? Well, for Philo... God gives his best gifts to male and not female, to free and not slave, to educated, not ignorant. Wait a second. Surprise, surprise. People like Philo. Hmm. If you look at Philo's theology, God's gifts are conditioned upon worldly status, upon achievement. And so if you were to do a little interaction with Philo's theology in the Corinthian worth system of the day, you would find that Philo's theology affirms the Corinthian worth system. Ah, it enters into it, and it blesses it, and it plays on its own terms. And then here's Paul. Here's Paul in Ephesians 2.8. And what does Paul say about God's gifts? Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's what? It's the gift of God. Okay. So for Paul, God gives his best gifts, his highest gifts, the gifts of salvation, the gifts of himself and Jesus Christ, not to friends, but to enemies, not to the righteous, but to the unrighteous, not to the godly, but to the ungodly. And so Paul, with this powerful theology of God's saving grace, of God's gift giving, looks at the church and says, I want you to stop gauging yourself on the Corinthian worth system. Because guess what? God didn't save you upon it. 
God didn't seek you out upon it. And so for you, the Corinthians, to go back and to now live based upon this worth system is to go back to an old way that God does not bless. That's my daughter. Sorry, the cuteness, it just, it, it got me for a second. But here's the, you know, okay, here, let's make a teaching moment out of this, because I'm a pastor. You know, it's okay for babies to cry in the service. Moms, you don't have to get anxious, you don't have to get up and leave, right? You can just sit, it's okay, we have space for it. Um, it's part of being a family and gathering, Right? And so we, we do want to have space for that in the service. Okay. In teaching moment. Thank you, EA. We planned that this morning. <laughs> so here's the reality that Paul wants them to see, is that the gospel reveals something radical. In Paul's day and in our day. And it's the human and this is kind of central to what I'm getting at this morning. So if, you know, if you've been checked out, I, I get it, but come back for a second. Um, human systems in, of worth and value that we tend to gauge ourselves upon ultimately don't matter because they don't matter to the grace of God. Human systems of worth and value that we tend to gauge ourselves upon don't ultimately matter because they don't matter to the grace of God, to the gifts of God, and the highest gift that God gives is himself. So what does this have to say to our self-worth crisis? Well, it's a word that enters in a different way than maybe some of the normal conversations. But let me ask a question to you this morning. How do you gauge your worth? And I'm not talking about in Sunday school when someone asks for the answer. I'm talking about in the day in and the day out realities and difficulties of life. How do you gauge your worth? How do you measure it? What, what gives you worth or value in, in the business world? What gives you high worth or value there? Right? How about in the university? What about in your friend circle? In your group text thread? What gives you high worth or value there? Right? What about the family you grew up in? What's the worth scale there? Who has high worth and value? Right? Here's an interesting question. What about at Shades Valley? <laughs> As you think about it, how do you perceive if you have high worth or high value at Shades Valley? That could reveal some stuff to us this morning, right? And here's the thing. It's, it's going to be different for all of us, right? So what is it? Is it the success that we've had in our company or our career? Is it the number of friends that we have or the influence that we have or the amount of money that we make and then the lifestyle that that affords us? Is it whether or not we have kids? Is it whether or not we're married? Is it whether or not you're the perfect parent? 
Is it whether or not you're the perfect mom according to whatever the worth and value scale of being the perfect mom is? Or the perfect dad? Whatever that looks like on the worth and value scale of being the perfect dad. Is it that you have a a visual appearance and vibe to you that matches cultural expectations? Right? And then my next question is, do you ever feel exhausted from constantly measuring your life according to some worldly scale of worth? Or have you ever felt so insignificant, small, and alone because you keep looking at the world's system of value and you say, I just don't measure up? Or are you exhausted this morning because in some ways you think you do measure up on the world's system and scale of value and worth? And when people look at you on the outside, they see success. They see someone having it all together. They see high worth. They see someone that they want to be like. But on the inside, you're exhausted. On the inside, you're tired. On the inside, there is insecurity and shame and self-loathing and deep fear. Deep fear. This morning... Each of us is invited to get out of, to completely remove ourselves from the world's system of worth and the constant gauging and measuring that comes with that, and to experience the embrace of God. Experience the warm embrace and to see your worth and your value by looking at him. By sitting here this morning and meditating on your salvation, right? And as you do that, you'll see what? That God didn't seek you out and save you because of the amount of success that you've had or your position in the company. He didn't seek you out and save you because of your accomplishments. He didn't seek you out and save you because you have the perfect kids. He didn't seek you out and save you because you have a spouse or you're single. He doesn't love you and delight in you because you have a ton of money or you have no money. He doesn't love and delight in you because of your personality or because of the social standing that you have. He doesn't love and delight in you because your body conforms to cultural expectations. And guess what? He didn't call you because of your popularity. He didn't call you because of your good works, your righteousness, your church attendance, your theological knowledge, your lack of theological knowledge, or your obedience. He called you because it pleased him to seek you out, to find you, and to shower nothing but mercy, grace, and love. He wanted nothing more than to adopt you into his family and to call you son and to call you daughter and to delight in you. Wow. So tell me, where does that fit on the world's scale of worth and value. It doesn't. It's totally outside of it, and it's a worth and a value that's completely unspeakable. Because, do you hear the worth and value in saying, I am a child of God? 
Do you hear the worth and value of saying that my heavenly Father loves me and cares for me and delights in me? I was talking to, to Jeff and Park this morning. They asked me how they could pray for the sermon. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not really saying anything new this morning about the love of the Father, about the gifts that we are given in salvation, about the sweet communion that we have in God, right? The safety, the security. But I feel like in my own life for so long, there's just been a block where I could say it cognitively but could not get down from my head to my heart. And it feels like when we get into this place of knowing deeply within us that God loves and delights us, I see it, I see it in pastoral counseling, I see it in conversation, there begins to become this resistance. No, but you don't know. No, but you don't see. No, but I, no, but I, no, but I, no, but I, right? And I don't think it's something that we're gonna be argued into or persuaded. It feels like a spiritual reality to me. And so my prayer this morning was, God, would you remove the walls that the enemy puts up that doesn't want us to see who we are in Jesus Christ? Because if we do, we would have such a radically different vision of ourself, one that is not too low and one that is not too high, but one that is true. True of what God has done for us, true of who God sees us. And if we were to feel that and experience, we might start laughing out loud in church or we might start crying because it would penetrate so deeply in our hearts that we wouldn't know what else to do than either fall on our faces or lift our hands because we are loved. So let me just close with this this morning. In the last two verses that were read, 1 Corinthians 30 and 31, Paul says this. Paul says, and because of him, you are in Jesus Christ. Do you see how he goes from Corinthian worth system into union with Christ and who we are? Because of him, you are in Jesus Christ. who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, and this is what I want us to focus in on, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, Boast in the Lord. There's an interesting line in G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. I don't know if you've engaged with it before. Uh, you really have to engage in it line by line. <laughs> um, it's very dense. But if you can do the hard work, there can be some really beautiful things that, that come out of it. And he, he writes this. It's just a line. Um, he writes th these words because he noticed that Christianity was being criticized by those in society, right? Uh, but he noticed that it was for contradictory reasons. Isn't that interesting? And so he says this. He goes, Christianity was too pessimistic for some. Hmm, okay. And then it was a great deal too optimistic Interesting, being criticized for being too pessimistic, and then you're being criticized for being too optimistic. 
He said, one rationalist had hardly done calling Christianity a nightmare before the other began calling it a fool's paradise. (laughs) Do you see? Christianity is a nightmare. Well, you know what? Christianity is a fool's paradise. What? Right? And so here at the end, I bring out this quote to say, we come to a Christian view of the self, and it's something that's so otherworldly, it's almost like it has to be revealed to us. Because in some senses, it's too pessimistic for the pessimist because of what the scriptures say about sin and because of what the scriptures say about God's serious demand for justice. And so we take that into account. And many say, no, that's too pessimistic. But then on the other hand, I can look at each one of you this morning and say that God loves you, that he's pleased with you, and that you are a saint. I'm no Mother Teresa. You don't have to be Mother Teresa. Your designation of saint is not based upon some worldly worth of acts of service or church attendance or theological knowledge. No, it's not. And so I look at you not as a joke, and I say, you are a saint. You are a holy one. You are righteous. And I know that the Lord is sanctifying you and that he's going to bring you into, dare I say it, paradise. And guess what? Paradise has actually already started. And we can see evidences of it this morning. But we have a future where there's not only no evil, but that it's deeper, better. (sighs) Deeper oceans, higher mountains, greater love, satisfaction, joy, delight, knowledge for eternity. That, my friends, is the Christian view of the self. Would you join me in praying? Gracious Heavenly Father, if we are to boast this morning, we boast in Jesus for who he is and what he has done in saving us. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray in this time of worship and communion and prayer that you would come and you would plant this deeply into our hearts. For our boast and our joy this morning is in Jesus. And we find ourselves when we worship him. So show us who we are by showing us your son. Amen and amen.